Fundraising is not particularly fun at all. It kind of sucks. And we recognize that conventional fundraising has a lot of stuff with it that's broken and fractured. And we're gonna talk about how FansRaise fixes a lot of those issues. Here we go. Welcome to Funding the Performing Arts Podcast. Open and frank discussion about supporting and growing the performing arts, such as instrumental, vocal, drama, dance, marching, and pageantry arts. Well, howdy there. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever you're listening to this. Uh, my name is Brian Gilbert. This is Funding the Performing Arts Podcast. Welcome. Um, yeah, lots to go over today. We're going to talk a bit about a topic that's actually come up in conversations that I've been having with a lot of booster parents, a lot of booster organizations, and that is uh, more and more people are beginning to really better understand some of the limitations that come with conventional fundraising, namely the stuff that you sell. And that could run the gamut from, I don't know, uh, sweet treats and goodies, cookies, cakes, pies, candy, um, you know, cookie dough, pizza kits, wrapping paper, light bulbs, uh, my band growing up, our, our thing, we had actually uh, two fundraisers that, uh, frankly, I made a, a killing on. Uh, one was pre-decorated little miniature Christmas trees, uh, which were actually kind of cool. They were about, I don't know, maybe 24 inches high, maybe 28 inches high, and they were pre-decorated. They weren't lit, but they were in the little pot, and they were little live uh, pine trees, uh, or some sort of spruce, I guess, or fir. But they were like little baby trees, almost like little bonsai trees, but they were decorated and they had like a, a wrapping paper pot, wrapping paper covered pot. And they were pretty cool. Um, and man, I used to schlep boxes of those around my neighborhood like it was nobody's business and uh, paid for paid for several band trips and indoor seasons that way. Um, the other thing my school did a lot, I'm kind of going on memory lane here because there's something I want to I want to just talk talk about. Um in a moment. Um, the other thing my my school did was we did hoagie sales. Now, if you're not familiar with the name hoagie, uh, if you're from the Mid-Atlantic, if you're from the Philadelphia area, a hoagie is a sub sandwich. Or in other parts of the country, it's called a Zeppelin. Or, you know, it's basically a sandwich, like cold cuts um, on a long roll. And we call them hoagies here in the Philadelphia region. And I think a lot of people maybe make fun of that. I don't know. It's what we do. But anyway, um, we, I, I've seen other schools do this and I've seen, now again, this is taking place back in the like mid to late eighties, uh, when I was a, a, a wee one, but the, the, the thing was different was we weren't selling coupons to go to Subway and cash the coup, like pre pre-bought coupons. We actually bought the guts of the sandwich and we would take orders from the people in our neighborhoods and our friends and family or whatever. And we would actually show up, uh, I think it was one Saturday or two Saturdays a month in our cafeteria. And on these long cafeteria tables, there would be laid out um, all of the ingredients for all the hoagies. And then you had to make them. So for an Italian, you'd grab, it was all done on like um, 
like wax paper and all the cold cuts would be kind of pre um you know pre-assembled for you so you'd slap the you know the meat on and you do the lettuce and the onion tomatoes peppers whatever but you would build each sandwich and then have to wrap it so the part of that that was actually pretty cool now looking back on it number one it was a blast it was kind of like the whole car wash thing where you're together with your friends and hey what time are you going to make your hoagies oh i'm going to 8 8 30 my mom wants to get there early okay i'll see you there and you would just do it and it was something we would do before rehearsal and then we would go to rehearsal get ready for our saturday morning football game or whatever it may be my my stadium high school stadium didn't have lights so all of our home games had to be played on saturday afternoons um but it was a kind of a social thing kind of like the car wash thing as i mentioned so um i don't know that was a that was a big part of my upbringing in my program were these hoagie sales and we'd have them through the year like one one weekend a month we'd go and uh you know schlep together these these poorly constructed hoagies of questionable integrity um they may or may not have a band-aid in them uh, <laughs> or they might end up uh, your 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 ham and cheese uh, with mayo may end up with some uh, some oil and vinegar on it. Um, you know, quality control was probably not the best. Um, I'm sure the health department would have maybe taken some exception with uh, the five second rule, and that's about all I'll say on that. But anyway, it was it was a lot of fun, and um, it's interesting kind of walking down that memory lane because this week, um, you know, thanks to the um, you know, the, the entity that is the Facebook, um, I learned that, uh, one of my favorite mentors growing up in the music ed, uh, marching world, uh, passed away. And, um, I'll tell you a little bit about him. His name is Bob Barron. He was a band director in, um, the upper Moreland school district for 35 years, I think. Um, Bob was uh, a graduate of Westchester university. One of the reasons I picked to go there, um, along with my own band director. Um, and it was the only school I applied to. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a school he highly recommended as, as did my band director. And that was it. One college application, one set of auditions, boom, that's where I want to go. And, um, yeah, so Bob, when I was a freshman breaking into my marching band, um, Bob was the assistant band director at the neighboring school, which was in a different competition group than ours. We competed in the same circuit, um, but they were a different size. So we didn't go head to head against them. So Bob ran our marching back in the eighties. It was called marching and maneuvering, uh, M and M. So Bob, uh, basically was the feet guy. He, he was the guy in charge of basics, getting us to go left, right, left, right together, stand up straight posture, the whole bit. And, um, Bob was a, an original founding member of the Crossman drum and Beagle Corps back when it formed, uh, in the, uh, in the mid seventies. And I, I just thought that was cool. And I remember my very first Tuesday night summer practice. It would have been June, right after eighth grade ended. And I knew I was going to march to the ninth grade. And I remember showing up and meeting my section leader. There were only two of us in the tuba section. He was a senior. He was six foot five, um, big guy. And he looked like, looked like my dad, or he could be a dad or should be a dad. Uh, and I was this little 13-year-old uh, you know, 120 pounds soaking wet. I was five foot five. He was six foot five. So we looked ridiculous, uh, but I could play and I didn't know what I didn't know at that point. And, uh, I remember the very first night I stood in a basics block and we were learning coming to attention band 10 hut. 
and I just remember scratching my nose. And I remember Bob, Mr. Barron or Mr. B, just instantly appearing in front of me. I don't know where he came from, but he got right in my face. And he said, you do not move at attention. And I started to giggle a little bit just because I didn't know what was happening. I had no idea. And he, he told me to put my tuba down and do 20 push-ups. And I looked at my section leader who did not look back at me because he knew better. And uh, I did my, my 20 push-ups the whole time wondering, wow, this is really, this is really odd. I've ne- I didn't think I'd have to do push-ups in band. And I didn't get angry. I didn't get upset. It wasn't embarrassed. It was just like, oh, okay, I guess I'm doing this now. And um, I just, he was, he was super intense, but he was having such a blast. And I never for a moment um, questioned how he went about getting us to look good. And we did look good. We were a really, really good band program. I was so lucky to, to attend the school I did and, uh, and study under the staff um, that we had. Um, and then fast forward a number of years later, I was in college uh, I ended up taking about three years off during co- my college years and then going back and completing. So my college, instead of taking about four years, it took about seven uh, because of that three-year hiatus I took. But when I went back, um, I was definitely more mature, more polished. I kept teaching marching band the whole time. So when I went back, I was with a bunch of younger kids in my classes, my methods and student teaching and practicum and all that. And I just I just ate it for lunch. I got straight A's and I was just so ready and so so prepared to, to get a job. And when student teaching assignments came out, uh, I sat down with the, uh, the music ed coordinator at my college and, um, she was asking, you know, Hey, I've got a couple of places I could put you. I could put you here. I could put you here. Or I could put you at upper Moreland high school with Bob Barron. I'm like, I know Bob. And she's like, well, I don't know if I want you working with a cooperating teacher that you already know or have a relationship with. I'm like, well, he taught me in high school for a couple of years, and I know him, he may not remember me. And she goes, oh, okay, then it's okay. Now, in actuality, I did know him and he knew me because I taught a lot of bands in the circuit um, where he was competing and we, we'd see each other and, you know, judges meetings and, this, and stuff. So um, he, he ended up calling me uh, before the fall school year and said, hey, Gilbert, you're, you're, you're student teaching with me. This is great. Um, you know, my band rehearses after school. Can you, can you stick around after school for marching band? And I said, yeah, I can do that a few times a week. I'm teaching, uh, two bands over in New Jersey. And I lived over in, you know, Happer, Willow Grove area, Pennsylvania. And I had to drive over to New Jersey. As long as I'm out the door by about five o'clock, I can be on the field to start practice at 630 over in South Jersey over the bridge. And he's like, okay, great. So I was teaching, his marching band kind of helping out as sort of the student teacher. Um, I remember the first day showing up, um, it was kind of a neat reunion and, uh, in his office, he had his, a great office with a couch and an easy chair. And, uh, I got in there early. His office was unlocked. I made myself comfortable on the couch and he walks in and he, he scowls at me and he goes, why don't I smell coffee? And I looked and on the side table, there's a coffee maker and something I'd never seen before, this like little cylindrical, like tabletop appliance. And what it was, was a bean grinder. And Bob was very into his coffee and I drank coffee, but you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't care uh, one way or the other, if it was Maxwell House or Folgers, all the crap coffee my parents uh, 
<laughs> grew me up on. But um, he's like, look, here are the rules. When I walk through that door, I need to smell fresh brewed coffee every morning. You do that, you're on your way to getting an A in student teaching. And he smiled and gave me a big hug. So um, we got on famously. I learned a lot. I think the biggest thing I took from Bob was that it was, it was the ability, and it's a soft skill. It's something that I think a lot of good band directors, great band directors understand. And that is being able to use all of the resources at your disposal to know at any given moment the collective mindset of your ensemble and where they are emotionally and mentally. Are they focused? Are they tired? Are they bitching about stuff? Are they complaining? Are they, you know, are they in a good mood? Are they in a questionable mood? Um, what's going on? Are they worried? Are they anticipating something? And then being able to modify your instructional approach based on their headspace. And that always fascinated me. That, that psychological element um, was something that he did masterfully well. Uh, he was a great educator, phenomenal trumpet player, just a killer, killer player. And uh, that Upper Moreland High School program right outside of Philadelphia has turned out some of the best professional instrumental musicians in the Philadelphia area that are still playing today. Um, guys my age, a little older than me, a little younger than me, but um, just some amazing pros, um, several of which are college professors now um, that are, you know, recording artists. And it's just, it was a sad thing. So Bob died this week. Um, his services were, uh, were, were yesterday in the evening. I could not make it. Um, but I'm really sad. And, uh, anyway, so that's, that's on my mind, but I want to turn this back around to the issues, the problems, the limitation that, uh, are inherent with conventional fundraising. And one of the things that we set out to do with Fansraise when we set the company up is that we wanted to solve problems and we wanted to solve problems that actually exist as opposed to things that we thought sucked and we wanted to improve. And I think fortunately we figured out there's a, there's a, uh, I guess a convergence of those two things. Fundraising sucks and it needs to be improved. And I think a lot of people are really beginning to see that because the product sale, uh, process of fundraising is definitely losing steam. And I, I'm getting that through multiple conversations that I've had running concurrently with different booster organizations, different band parent associations all over the United States. Um, the, you know, the fundraising that's taking place, whether it's candy or, you know, items or widgets or whatever, um, these things are losing steam. And I don't know exactly what the cause of that is. I don't know if it's Amazon. Maybe it's the fact that, you know, the majority of American households have a Prime membership and anything that you want can be literally on your doorstep, in some cases, the same day, in most cases, next day. Um, you know, being I, my wife came home from the grocery store and the Boy Scouts were selling popcorn outside of the grocery store. And it's a bag of popcorn um, kind of like a snack bag, a little bit, maybe a little bit touch bigger than just a regular bag of potato chips or popcorn. Um, a lot of air in it, but it was a decent sized bag and uh, it was laying on the kitchen counter. I said, oh, how much did this cost? And she goes, guess. I went, uh-oh. 
<laughs> so I said, was this $8? Thinking that a regular bag of like smart food popcorn or, you know, whatever would be somewhere in like the 3 to $4 range. I'm like, all right, well, was this $8? She's like, no. So it's $12. She goes, no. I'm like, how much was this popcorn? She said, this was $22. And I said, you've got to be out of your mind. She's like, well, it's $22. And I supported the Boy Scouts. And um, it was mediocre popcorn, to put it nicely. Um, and I'm probably stretching the uh, definition of mediocre. But nevertheless, um, the profitability is is definitely skinnier in terms of profit margin than it has been in the past. Um, the, the, the price per item is higher. So you're charging more, making less. Um, I'm sure the fundraising companies are adjusting their variables to try to, to, to meet their, uh, their revenue goals. But I also think that, you know, to make up for this, what do a lot of booster programs do? They, they daisy chain fundraisers together. They do more, they do more of the same little crappy stuff that isn't sort of working the way it once did or should. And this is really creating a lot of fundraising fatigue. Uh, there's always been logistical challenges in this area because in a lot of cases you're pre-ordering items. So you're getting almost like a pledge to buy the item. Maybe it's prepaid, maybe it's not. But then you, you turn in an order form and then, I don't know, three, four weeks later, the stuff shows up. The people that said they would order it, um, maybe they forgot. And now you've got to go deliver product, um, and that's a hassle, and then collect money. Um, so there's all these logistical challenges around this, and it's not clean. And it's 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 not now. Maybe some organizations do a nice tighter job of managing all this, um, but it just it's never as good as it should be or it could be. And in a lot of cases, people really don't want the product. They really you know hey here's my here's my twenty five bucks. Um, have a great season, and you know that that's a that's generally the gist of what's happening in the transaction. Um, you know, another side of this too is that in this fundraising approach, you're going to, if you look at your families, let's say you have a hundred families in your organization and maybe out of, you know, with siblings and, and things, I don't know, maybe let's say you have a, a program of 125 students, but a hundred families. It's probably easier to look at this on the family basis. And if you look at this 100 families, they're not all going to participate. In fact, in a lot of fundraisers, it's a shockingly low number of families that actually do follow through and participate. Everyone may take the information. And how many sets of families actually show up to a booster meeting to begin with? Probably not all of them. So you're emailing everybody. Half the emails don't get opened. You know, you attach flyers and information. It kind of falls on deaf ears. It doesn't really go anywhere. You probably have like 15 or 18 families that go, yeah, 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 let's do that. Let's do that. And they get on it. Um, but 18 to 20% of your families actually participating in the fundraiser, um, whether it, it, it pads the kid's trip account or their activity account, um, that's probably going to dictate whether or not... Um, you know, the families actually bite and they, they follow through. But then what about the stuff where you need to fundraise for the organization as opposed to the individual students? And this is really where it's, it's challenging to fundraise because in this area, it's tough. Fundraising really takes on an optional type of attitude across these different families. 
So then when it's time to actually do something where you need everyone to step up and take part and get hands on and roll up their sleeves and do it, um, it's very difficult to get 100% or even something even resembling close to 100%. And that's the big limitation. And that's the thing where crowdfunding really can come in and say, look, this is different. We're going to approach this differently because, you know, in this fundraiser, this really benefits the purchase of the new uniforms or the truck or the trailer or the hard fixed costs for our competitive season. You know, the, the, the truck rental, the freight, the equipment, the props, the, um, you know, the, the, the costs of chaperones, the things that are, that are organizationally based that may not be budgeted for. And I think that this is really where when you put a fundraiser together or a crowdfunding campaign together, like for instance, with, with fans raise, it becomes imperative to really separate that, Hey, this thing is different. And this, uh, this effort required is not much of an effort at all. It's basically 10 to 15 minutes of thought led by your student led by your son or your daughter, um, as opposed to the parents doing all the work. Now, the parents should support in the background, but typically we coach our organizations to let the kids play the primary role. Teaches ownership, teaches accountability, all those all those neat things. But should the parents be aware that it's happening and should they be supporting in the background? Of course. Yeah, it's a big part. So um, I think that you know the limitations for product sales um, even big product sales, things like mattress sales. I see a lot of groups doing this mattress sale thing. It's great. Um, you know, it requires some planning and it requires some advertising, some marketing. You know, how many people buy a mattress? Uh, not many. And I, I think that it's a bigger ticket item. It's still fairly low profitability, but it's a slice of a larger purchase price. So that helps. But I don't know that that's something that you can come back to annually every year and expect that to be successful. Now, maybe annually in your community, it, it's enough to make it worth it. But I definitely think that um, the stress and the hassle, there's no reason not to do both. And most of the groups that we work with um, are, are doing some you know, larger ticket product sales like a mattress sale, um, you know, mulch sales, things like that. Things where you know, a family could spend a couple hundred dollars on a, a mulch delivery, a, you know, 10, 12 yards of mulch to get started in the spring. Um, definitely worthwhile. So um, also to that note, if you're looking for new and different and more diverse fundraising options, maybe some things you didn't think about, uh, a great place to start your brainstorming would be downloading our 90 plus fundraising ideas download. And if you jump on Facebook and look at our past posts, you will see that. Um, and it's a free download. You just plug your email address in and we send it to you. Um, it's something you can share across your Bambooster organization. Um, check it out. There's going to be, I know there's going to be some things on there that you haven't thought of, you haven't tried, um, and, uh, might be worth, uh, considering. Now, of course, I want you to do fun, uh, fans raise, obviously, um, but you're not going to just do fans raise. You're going to do other things. So I would say, the smart organizations, like if I were consulting with you, what I would tell you to do is take a look at your past um, 36 months worth of fundraising and look at three years ago, two years ago, and last year, and look at all the fundraisers you did, the time of the year that you did them, and the total net profit from each one. And then I would evaluate. I would I would definitely take the bottom half of everything that you do 
and I would get rid of it. And I would focus on the upper 50% of the things that um, yielded the most profit relative to the amount of time that it took to plan it. So if you, if you have something that made pretty good profit, um, but it took a mountain of volunteer hours to put together and a lot of logistical hurdles to overcome, maybe that's something you want to look to replace just to help streamline it, just to, to you know, the, 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 the tax that it takes sometimes in terms of hours to plan is, uh, it can be a limiter sometimes. So think about that, grab that download, it's certainly going to be worth it. And, um, it, it, now I'll tell you what, now is the perfect time. School has started. Everyone's settled in their groove. The kids have basically learned their show, hopefully, or they're, they're finalizing the end of their show. Uh, competitions are starting for fall marching band. And it's a great time now that everyone's in the groove um, to say, guys, look, we're going to do a three-week or four-week capital campaign. We're going to raise money for these five things that we need to purchase for our program. And uh, I need I need your support. I need everyone to step up and, and play a part in this. And it's a great time because then you'd be, you'd be coming down to, we're middle of September. By middle of October, you can have a nice fat check in your mailbox and uh, on you go. So give that some thought. If there's anything we can do, reach out to us at info at fansraise.com or just shoot me an email at brian with an i brian at fansraise.com we would love to hear more about your cool and awesome plans for your program this year so with that i'm going to bid you farewell hope everyone has a wonderful week as we look to uh, hit the midpoint of september here and uh, we look forward to talking with you soon see you next time